Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're in a series on the book of Romans. Today is part 15, I believe. And I want to look today at some hard passages, controversial passages in Romans chapter 9. And the controversy over God's sovereign, predetermined election versus man's free will and choice. Uh, and as a backdrop, let me remind you that uh, what Peter himself says about some of Paul's writing, Second Peter 3.16, uh, uh, Peter says that Paul's letters contain some things in them that are hard to understand. So be warned. <laughs> now, this whole... Um, a series of chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's really a topically cohesive, unified section, all about the Jewish people, God's chosen people. And so these three, in these three chapters, Paul is attempting to answer various questions uh, that are being posed by his uh, uh, Jewish audience, such as, why didn't our fellow Jews receive Yeshua as their Messiah? What's God doing through this current rejection of the majority of our people of Yeshua. Uh, and what's God's plan for Israel in the future? And so as we study over these next couple months, Romans 9, 10, and 11, we need to understand that Paul is uh, responding to uh, and correcting popular Jewish teaching and expectations of that time. Uh, and and uh, because he's responding to these Jewish objections... He's purposely, in these three chapters in particular, are going to be bringing in teachings, extensive teachings from the Tanakh, uh, from the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, in order to do that. So Paul is doing exactly what Yeshua did in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua declared in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, and then he would quote from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and then he would give a fuller, more correct, originally intended meaning of, of the Scriptures. In the same way, Paul, Rav Shaul, he's now correcting the popular religion of his day with a more fuller revelation of the Messiah. Now, historically, over the last 2,000 years, the church has seen Romans 9, 10, and 11 as just this kind of mere, huge, parenthetical footnote on Israel that really doesn't fit well with the rest of the book of Romans. They don't, don't really know what to do with it. In fact, if you go to a lot of teachings, they'll go to the book of Romans, they'll almost skip 9, 10, and 11. Uh, but actually, it's just the opposite. 9, 10, and 11 is the natural sequence after going through Romans 1 to 8, uh, if, we, if, we, if, if we are able to read the book of Romans with Hebraic eyes uh, and with a Jewish mindset. So here's, here's some examples of, of how this whole Jew-Gentile issue is not just unique to 9, 10, and 11, but it runs the entire book of Romans. So Romans 1, 1 to 6, the very beginning of the book starts like this. Uh, Paul says, I'm a servant of the Messiah Yeshua, set apart uh, for the gospel, promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding God's Son, who at, as to his earthly life was also Ben David, was also the son of David. Uh, the, it was the Hebraic term for, for the Messiah, uh, to call all, and to call all the Gentiles, all the goyim, all the nations, to faith and obedience. So right from the very, right from the very beginning of the book, uh, Paul saying Yeshua is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's the Messiah of the Jews. He's the son of David. 
And by the way, he's now also for all the nations to receive as well. So right from the beginning of Romans, Paul's talking about this, these Jew-Gentile issues. And then go down to Romans 1.16, a very famous verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Again, we see right from chapter 1 that Paul's focusing on Jew-Gentile issues and God's special calling on Israel to the Jew first. So it's nothing new for him now to come back to this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, look at Romans 2, verse 8. For those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for everyone who does evil, for the Jew first, and also the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Again, we see throughout the book of Romans, if read properly, we see Paul always has these Jew-Gentile issues in mind. It's not something that suddenly new pops up in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, now why does Paul focus on these issues? Let me put this on the overhead here. Uh, because Paul, Paul's Jewish readers, especially the Messianic Jews, the Jewish believers, they want to know two things. They want to know, one, why haven't the majority of our people yet believed in Yeshua? And number two, why are all these Gentiles suddenly coming into the Messianic Jewish movement? So in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is going to explain these issues. That's the context for these next three chapters. And I would also, the entire book of Romans, especially 9, 10, and 11, are thoroughly grounded in the texts and the teachings from the Hebrew Scriptures. Because Paul's speaking especially now to his fellow Jews here and trying to explain these two issues and to show that Messianic Judaism is not a new religion, but rather is the fulfillment of the teachings and the promises and the prophecies and the shadows and the types from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures. So, we're going to put this on the overhead. Paul is driving home here that the New Testament gospel is actually an Old Testament truth. That's why, for example, in Romans 3, Paul used the Torah to show that all have fallen short of God's standards, both Jew and Gentile. And therefore, all are in need of God's grace through faith in Yeshua. And then the next chapter, Romans 4, Paul shows that salvation by faith is reality. How? Because he uses the Hebrew Scripture to show it. He shows us how Abraham was saved by faith, how David was saved by faith. Then the next chapter, Romans 5, Paul connects it all back to Adam and how Yeshua is the second Adam, the last Adam. Paul is purposely showing us how New Testament fulfillment is rooted in Old Testament truths. And then in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we see interaction of law and gospel and life and the Spirit, bringing into the, uh, the old and the new together. And now finally in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul comes to the culmination of all these Jewish and Gentile issues, especially answering these Jewish questions for, the, uh, for those Jews considering the gospel. Uh, uh, why haven't my fellow Jews received the Messiah? What's God's plan through all of this? Show me where in the Tanakh all this lines up. And that's why Romans 9, 10, and 11 is constantly quoting from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And we know that the big mistake that the majority of our people made in the first century was to, fit, was to try to fit all of this into the context of an immediate earthly kingdom. Yeshua, when are you going to set up your kingdom? They wanted Yeshua to be that earthly deliverer and king. And of course, eventually he will return one day to do that. But he first came as the suffering servant uh, to atone for our sins. And the majority of our people at the time failed to see that. 
failed, and failed to see how this was exactly prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures. And then on the overhead, we had that, okay. And today, we make the opposite mistake today. We think that everything in Romans 9 is about individual, personal salvation. And we don't realize that the chapter is also talking about, in large part, God's corporate, national, covenantal promises to Israel. And a lot of the Tanakh relates to these national promises to Israel as God's chosen people. So let's not go through Romans 9 thinking that every verse is about personal, individual salvation. Because sometimes it's about God's election of Israel as a people, as a nation. And so with this backdrop, let's begin to look at the text. Romans 9, uh, 1 through 3. Paul says, I speak the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience also confirms that in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I can wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my people, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is intense. Uh, I don't even know if I could pray this prayer. Paul says, if it were possible, he would give up his own eternal salvation for the sake of his fellow Jews. Notice the depth of the love that Paul has for his people Israel. Similar, by the way, to Moses in Exodus 32, where Moses was willing to be blotted out of the book of life rather than for the Lord to wipe out the nation of Israel. Do we care for lost souls like that? Examine your heart. This is, this is uh, amazing. Notice also that uh, even in unbelief, Israel is still considered here corporately God's chosen people. They have not been abandoned and replaced by a new entity called the church. Indeed, speaking of Israel, Paul says in the present tense that in Romans 9 verse 4, theirs is the adoption uh, into God's family, present tense, which of course harks back, harks back to Exodus 4.22. God says, Israel is my firstborn. Son, Israel was my son, my firstborn son. Israel has a national relationship with God of corporate adoption. So again, Romans 9, uh, 4 to 5. Theirs is the adoption into God's family. Theirs is the divine glory, the, the Shekhinah in their midst. Theirs is the covenants, including the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Uh, notice how the new covenant was given to whom? Jeremiah 31 was given to, given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The Gentiles are now grafted into this covenant as the, as the wild olive tree, but Israel is the natural olive tree. See how Jewish all of this is. Uh, theirs is the, the, the law, the Torah. Theirs is the temple worship uh, and the promises and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And most of all, the, the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Notice in verse 5, Paul expressly calls Messiah God. He says, and most of all, his human ancestry is Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Don't miss that. Notice also, as we're going to see in Romans 11, that Israel's unbelief is only a partial hardening. And that in the last days, God promises all Israel will be saved. Now, if Israel remains the the blessed people of God, uh, they should likewise be held as blessed by all who confess the God of Israel and confess his Messiah. And therefore, all forms of anti-Semitism, including replacement theology, uh, adopted today by much of Christendom, all forms of anti-Semitism are are antithetical to the gospel. 
And then also note in verse 2, Paul has great sorrow, unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because the majority of his fellow Jews are in unbelief uh, and not saved. Paul is driving home the point that all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, need Yeshua and are eternally lost without him. And therefore, we should be about our Father's business of, of preaching the gospel, of sharing the good news with all men, and especially with our fellow Jews, because Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is to them first. Note also that Paul here, with all his anguish in his heart for his fellow Jews who are unsaved, Paul knows nothing of so-called modern-day theologies like dual covenant theology or unconscious mediation or wider hope or any other heresy that would keep our people from active, conscious, totally committed trust in Yeshua. Here, Paul's pastoral heart here, breaking over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. Just as Yeshua himself wept over Jerusalem uh, and their unwillingness to come to him. We at Chaim, we need to have this same heart for the Great Commission. If you don't have this burden today uh, to, to, uh, to pray for and actively share your faith with unbelievers, ask God to change your heart. Our people, for the most part, have rejected Yeshua the first time, but God promises in the end all Israel shall be saved. And this fits the biblical pattern, by the way. Joseph was rejected by his brothers the first time and then later received. Moses was rejected by his people the first time and then later received. Even the Torah itself was rejected the first time. Moses had to smash the tablets. And then the second set was received. These are all Torah pictures of how Yeshua was despised and rejected, just as prophesied, Isaiah 53, but will be received upon his return, also just as prophesied, Zechariah 12 and elsewhere. So in this opening passage, verses 1 to 5, Paul is emphasizing God's commitment to Israel. But the issue then Paul, Paul then addresses is, how does this relate to the fact that the majority of, of Paul's fellow Jews have rejected the gospel? And the rest of chapter 9 and 10 and 11 is Paul's answer. So let's look at Romans 9, verse 6. It's not as though God's word has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not everyone who's descended uh, from, from Jacob, from Yaakov, whose name was changed to Israel, are the true Israel. Because God always works through a remnant according to faith. Verse 7. Nor because they're his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, he quotes Genesis 21, it's through Yitzhak, Isaac, your offspring shall be reckoned. Uh, Although both are sons of Abraham, only Isaac, not Ishmael, is the son of the promise. Ishmael is not of God's covenant people Israel. Physical descent alone does not secure one standing with God. And then Romans 9 verse 8. In other words, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. According to Genesis 18, at the appointed time I'll return and Sarah will have a son. Do you see how Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is grounding his New Testament teachings on truths from the Hebrew Scriptures? Very significant. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, just because you're physically a child of Abraham does not mean that you're part of Israel. And any Jew reading Paul would agree. 
For it's in Isaac the promised line continues, not Ishmael. God would bless, yes, bless Ishmael, yes, make him a great nation, but Genesis 17, 21, God says, but my covenant I'll establish with Yitzhak, with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you. So God's covenant is not according to the flesh, but according to the promise. You just can't say, well, I'm Jewish and therefore I have salvation, because it never worked that way. It was never just about mere physical, biological descent. Verse 10, not only that, but Rivka, Rebekah's children, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, she was told, Genesis 25, the older will serve the younger. So Rebecca's pregnant. She has twins. Uh, same parents. Even the exact same DNA. They're twins. But God chooses one to carry on the covenant promise, Yaakov, Jacob, uh, and not the other, Esau. Now, most commentators agree that this is a corporate election of Israel versus what became part of the Arab people. And it's not talking about the individual salvation of Jacob and Esau. Uh, Israel is God's chosen people. But, but, that, but that does not guarantee one's personal individual salvation because that's always been a remnant based on God's grace through faith. Uh, Paul saying to his fellow Jews that we need to have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not just their biological lineage. And it's not by inheritance, such as the right of the firstborn, Paul says in verse 12, since Esau was actually born first. And it's not by works, because neither have done anything good or bad when they're still in the womb. But it's by God's choice, and he chooses Yaakov. Now, if you're a Jewish reader in the first century wondering, why is it that we've not all received Messiah? Do you see how Paul's explaining this? He's emphasizing, emphasizing, even within the chosen people, there's always a chosen remnant who exercise genuine, saving faith. And that therefore, everyone descended from Abraham uh, is not an inheritor of God's promises. Uh, and to the Jewish reader, this is a huge deal. Because they can readily see and agree that, yes, of course, Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Uh, Jacob was chosen over Esau. And the fact that God chose Yaakov in the womb shows that it's not about works. Now, is this about individual salvation? No. This is not saying that God is choosing Jacob and all of his descendants to be saved, and Esau and all of his descendants to be damned. No, that's not what it's saying here. That's the wrong way to read this text Hebraically. Even though it's probably the classic, what's known as the classic Calvinist uh, interpretation. Here, the context is about the carriers of a national corporate covenant promise and all the things that God will do through the Jewish people that Paul listed in verses 4 and 5. There's the adoption, the divine glory, the covenants, the Torah, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and especially the Messiah. God's giving a national promise here. And this is brought out in the next verse, properly understood. So look at Romans 9, 13. Just as it's written, he's quoting Malachi, Jacob I've loved but Esau I've hated. Now, this is a very difficult verse. But let's view it in, the, in, in context. Now, the, the Calvinistic interpretation is that God chose Jacob for salvation and chose Esau for, for damnation. And there's nothing they can do about it because uh, he chose them from the womb. It's just the way it is. End of story. And if you read this verse in isolation, it's easy to see how you might think this is what it means. 
So we need to ask, is this love and hate in the sense we normally think of love and hate? Or is it love and hate in some other sense? I think scripturally it's, it's the latter. So look at, for example, in Luke 14, 26. Yeshua says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, he cannot be my disciple. Here Yeshua is using love and hate in a way that's very different from its normal meaning. Using typical Hebraic hyperbole, exaggeration, to emphasize a point, Yeshua is saying, to be my disciple, your love for me must be so much greater than your love, even for your own family, that your love for them, which, by the way, is commanded in the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, your love for them will look like hate by comparison. So is Yeshua contradicting the Torah, telling us to hate our mother and father? Or contradicting Ephesians 5, telling us to hate our spouse? No, of course not. Rather, it's about a choice. Yeshua is saying we must pick him in terms of our ultimate priority and passion and commitment. In a similar way, God says, Jacob I've loved, meaning I chose him for my covenant promises. Esau I hated. I did not pick him for my covenant people. I took one for the national chosen people of a promise and not the other. And it's not a salvation choice. Look at Genesis 29, uh, 30, 31. Love and hate are used the same way uh, as we've just been talking about, using the exact same Hebrew words, by the way. So look at Genesis 29, verse 30. Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Note the actual Hebrew does not say Leah was not loved. The actual Hebrew says Leah was hated. But the translators know that this is a Hebrew idiom, meaning in context, and they rightly translate it this way, that Rachel was loved less or unloved. It doesn't mean that Jacob literally hated Leah. In fact, in verse 30, it says that he loved Rachel more than Leah, meaning that he loved them both, but he loved Rachel more. So, so in the, with this background, that love and hate Hebraically is to simply prefer one over the other. Let's go to the actual text now that Paul is quoting from in Romans 9. He's quoting from Malachi 1. And we're going to see love and hate are, are qualified in this passage in the same, in the same way. And he, they, God explains here what he means by love and what he means by hate. So look at Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. Now put down the overhead. A prophesy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. By the way, Malachi in Hebrew means uh, my, my servant. Uh, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Yaakov's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Yaakov, but Esau I hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we'll rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I'll demolish. They'll be called the wicked land. The people always under, under the wrath of the Lord. You'll see it in your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Know that the word of the Lord is to the entire nation of Israel here through Malachi. He's not talking about Jacob, Israel, the person. Jacob, Israel, he's been dead for over a thousand years when Malachi writes this. God's talking here to the nation of Israel. And God says in verse 2, I've loved you. Who has he loved? Israel, meaning national Israel corporately. It's a corporate love for his covenant people, Israel. 
And then Israel asks him, in what way have you loved us? And God says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob and Esau I've hated. And, he, and then he goes down to describe judgment upon the land of Edom, upon the land, Esau's land corporately. So is this about salvation, individual salvation? No. It's about a national choosing. God says, I love Jacob. I love Israel, the nation. I've given them the promise of a perpetual future. Whereas Esau and his descendants are not getting this promise. They're not my corporate chosen people. So number one, it's not about hating Esau the person, because Esau is long dead when Malachi writes this. It's about a national destiny of a covenant people. And number two, in the Hebrew, as we've seen, doesn't mean that God literally hates Esau, but rather that he loves that nation less than he loves his special chosen people, Israel. God says, for Esau, for Edom's sins, I'm judging them corporately. Uh, their nation will be judged and punished. But for, for you, Israel, I'm going to bring you back to your land. Not based on your merit or, or, or your greatness, but based on my love and sovereign choice. God says to Israel, the nation, I'll restore you. I'll bless you again. You'll have a future in my prophetic plan. I'm not through with you. I've not replaced you. You're still my chosen people, even in your temporary, current, partial hardening and unbelief. So it's not as simple as Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, as if some are predestined to heaven, some are predestined to hell. That's not what this is talking about in its proper context and Hebraic thought. So yes, God does choose. But here it's a corporate election. And it's not about salvation. Otherwise, you're saying that God chose to hate Esau and his descendants. So here's an entire nation of people who can never, ever be saved, any one of them. And yet throughout history, and even today, we see many Arab people living in and near Israel who become believers. In fact, we have a wonderful Arab Christian brother uh, who, who loves Israel, Milad, uh, who's going to come and return here and speak here again in, in, in a couple months. And if this verse is about salvation, then the implication of Jacob I've loved would be that all Jews are saved, which we know is not true. And in fact, right here in Romans 9, Paul's in anguish because the majority of his people are not saved. And, and he's trying to explain why this is the case and why God's promises have not failed. So clearly this verse, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, is not talking about individual personal salvation. And moreover, it's not even using the words love and hate the way we use those words. Rather, it's talking about selection of one group of people for a preference for God's promises of God's special blessings over another as a corporate nation. And Paul is using this key example about Israel's corporate election to reach the Jewish people that he's now addressing here to explain that God's people have always been just a remnant, whether a remnant of the nations or a remnant within Israel. So don't lose heart. Don't think God's promises have failed just because the majority of Israel is currently in unbelief. Paul's Jewish readers, they're going to readily see that God, of course, God chose Jacob or Esau. And being Jews, they're going to like that fact. And then when Paul says that not all offspring of Abraham are Abraham's true seed, they can now see Paul's whole point. Look at Romans 9, verse 8. It's not the natural children who are automatically God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are Abraham's seed. In other words, Romans 9, 6, not all Israel are Israel. 
Do you see how Paul is brilliantly using the Torah to teach new covenant truths? So this raises the question, what, what, does God love everyone? Now, even though the text says Esau I hated, we've already explained that it doesn't mean hate in, in our sense. It's talking about selecting one nation over another for special purposes and promises. So does God, what does the Bible say about does God love everyone? Look at uh, 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. God is love. Love is an inherent part of his nature. We're never told that God is hate. We are told, though, that God is love. Look at Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. God was loving me when I was a sinner. John 3, 16, most famous verse of all, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting, eternal life. The text says God loves the whole world, all mankind. Matthew five forty four, Yeshua says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Luke six twenty seven. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So let me ask you a question. Do you think God, God commands us to love people that he himself does not love? No. God, he says, love your enemies. Do you not think that God likewise loves even his enemies? So, of course, now there's also another dimension to this as well. God, Yes, God has a love for all people, but that does not mean that every single person is saved. Because God is also a just judge. So look at Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge. A God who displays his wrath every day. God is angry with the wicked. Wait a minute, David. I thought you said that the Lord uh, loved everyone. How can you be, be angry then at the same time? You know, how can he love me and, and, and be angry with me? Well, let me ask you, have you ever had children? <laughs> if so, you know you can love someone and be angry with them at the same time. <laughs> Psalm 5, verse 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. So we see clearly God's love and hate coexisting side by side. Imagine you had two kids. And when they grew up, one killed the other. Like Cain and Abel. Do you still love the child that killed his brother? Do you hate him? Do you have some complicated feelings towards this child? Well, God is likewise capable of complicated thinking and emotions. Uh, there's a verse, an uh, important verse in Romans 11.28 that gets at, gets at this very concept. Romans 11.28. Paul's speaking now to Jewish non-believers, to not yet believers, and he says, as far as he's speaking about them, he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. So note this complex relationship we have with Jewish, Jewish non-believers. They're enemies for the sake of the gospel, but at the same time they're loved on account of the forefathers uh, because they're co-descendants with us of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're part of God's covenant people. So it's, it's multifaceted. 
and the execution stake, the tree, the cross, becomes the turning point. Because at the cross, you can shed all these issues which would cause you to be separated from God and just enjoy his love. So does God love the sinner or hate the sinner? Yes. It's both in different ways. It's complicated. You cannot put God in a box. Well, let's go on. Romans 9, 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't therefore depend on human desire, literally on him who wills, or human effort, literally on him who runs, but it depends on God's mercy. Now, Calvinists would say this means that you don't make a free will decision to put your trust in Yeshua, since it doesn't depend on him who wills or him who runs, meaning it does not depend on human desire or human will or human effort. You, therefore, don't have any free will choice to get saved. Rather, if you're one of the elect, they say, that God first sovereignly elects to save and regenerate you, and then in response to that, in response to that new heart he's given you, then you put your faith in Yeshua. So that your faith is merely an automatic response to God first regenerating you and causing you to be born again and filled with his spirit. So faith does not save you, Calvinists say. But rather, it's faith is simply a response to God sovereignly first saving you, first being saved sovereignly by God. So the Calvinists reverse the order we most naturally would think in, and that, and that we put our faith in Yeshua, and then we're saved. That's the most natural way of, of looking at it. They, they reverse that. And part of this reversal, I believe, is through the Calvinists misinterpreting a key passage, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. This is the famous passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Calvinists say, see, even your faith is a gift of God. Otherwise, it would be a work that you do. You'd be saved by works. We know you're not saved by works. Paul says here that we're not saved by works, so that no one may boast. Okay, two problems here. First, the Greek grammar makes it clear that the phrase gift of God is modifying the word grace, not the word faith. Paul is saying that grace is a gift of God. He's not saying that faith is a gift of God in this passage. The Greek grammar makes this very clear. The text does not say that faith is a gift of God. Second, faith is not a work the way the Bible defines works. Calvinists have have messed this up here because they're reacting to Roman Catholicism and they want to stress that salvation is not by works, but in their zeal, they misclassify faith as some kind of work. It's not. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by God's grace acting through our faith. Faith is not a work we boast in, but it's also not something that God forces upon us as some kind of divine fiat. That's not what the text says. In fact, all the passages throughout the scriptures that exhort you to repent, to believe, uh, to choose life, they all make no sense if we, if we played absolutely no role in this process. So what does Paul mean when he says, Romans 9, 16, that our salvation is not of him who wills, not of our will or desire, uh, or him who runs, not, not of, our, of our effort. The bottom line here, he's not talking about a free will choice to receive Messiah. In fact, he's talking about the exact opposite. He's talking about those who reject Messiah. Look at Romans 10, verse 2 and 3. 
This is the one who's willing and, and, who's, run, and who's running, uh, that Paul's talking about. Uh, Romans, Romans 10, verse 2. For I testify about them, about the Jewish non-believers. They have a zeal for God, but not based on knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Most of our people of the first century did not receive Yeshua because in their zeal, i.e., him who wills, and in their works, i.e., in him who runs, they tried to establish their own righteousness. But it doesn't come like that. It comes through faith. Faith isn't seen as some kind of big, powerful act of the will. It's nothing to boast in. That's the whole point. So who wills, in Romans 9.16, in context, I think is speaking of zeal, not faith. Salvation is not based on your zeal. Because as Paul says, zeal can be without knowledge. Indeed, at the end of the chapter, Romans 9.31, Paul explains that the people of Israel who pursued the Torah, the law, as a way of righteousness, have not attained the goal, their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. Our fellow Jews did not attain to righteousness because they didn't seek it by faith. Paul says here, thus showing that faith or lack thereof is, their, is a choice they made. Not some arbitrary, involuntary, divine fiat. Faith is something you must choose, not something that's thrust upon you. And that's why Paul is rebuking them for not having chosen faith. Because if the point of Romans 9 was to say, hey, it's not him who wills, meaning you don't have a free will choice to believe in Messiah, then why would Paul conclude the whole chapter by saying that they're not saved because they failed to pursue it by faith and instead pursued it by works? He's clearly saying here that faith is a choice. Otherwise, he would have concluded the chapter by saying, well, they're not saved because God did not sovereignly regenerate them. But Paul doesn't say that. And thus, I don't think that Calvinism is consistent with Romans chapter 9, even though, ironically, this is their favorite chapter. So, God's mercy is the point. It's not God saying, I'll save them by regeneration as a divine command, boom, you're saved, you're regenerated. No, no, but rather God says, I'll save them by my mercy. And mercy is shown at the cross and our response to it. Mercy is, I'm going to put my faith in Yeshua, and that's how I'll be saved. It's not through Torah observance. It's not through obedience of the law. It's not through rituals and baptisms and sacraments. Rather, it's through what Yeshua has done, period. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Messiah alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. And so with this in mind, look at Romans 9.14 one more time. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness in God? Now, why would that be the issue? Because Paul is answering Jewish objections here. Lord, why aren't, aren't we your chosen people? Uh, uh, why aren't we your elect? Why aren't we all saved? Is there unrighteousness in God? No, for he says, Moses, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. It's all based on God's mercy, not on our works or efforts or good deeds or Torah observance or rituals. So then it's not of him who wills or him who runs, but a God who shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is the classic text used by the Calvinists to defend their doctrine of predestination. God has mercy on who he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. Seems pretty clear, right? But there's another way to understand this Hebraically. By looking at the actual context in the book of Exodus, when the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. So first, Paul is talking in Romans 9 about God choosing a corporate people, Israel, for his promises, not individual salvation. Individual salvation is not the topic of Romans 9. Israel's calling, Paul says, is not based on their blood or their works. It's based on God's choice. And this is to establish a grounding for when Paul does talk about salvation so that we understand that it's by God's mercy and his grace. But first, Paul talks about Pharaoh and how God hardens his heart. And there's a theological term for this. It's called judicial hardening. The idea is that God hardens people as an act of judgment against their sin. He doesn't harden them arbitrarily, as Calvinism teaches. This is not arbitrary hardening. It's judicial hardening. And the text of Romans 9 never says that the hardening is arbitrary or without reason. The text says God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. But it doesn't say he has mercy arbitrarily for no reason or that he hardens arbitrarily for no reason. Rather, it's judicial hardening. It's a just hardening that happens to Pharaoh due to Pharaoh's own sin and obstinance and hard-heartedness. Indeed, Pharaoh first, if you look at the text of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh first hardens his own heart three times in Exodus 8 and 9, using the Hebrew word kavod, or kavod, we'll put that in the, overhead, in the overhead here, the Hebrew word kavod meaning to make heavy uh, or weighty. It also means, could also mean to honor or to encourage. And the context is that Pharaoh is puffed up with pride, he wants to honor himself and establish his own greatness. So he first hardens his own heart three times, and then, after that, in Exodus 9, 10, and 11, in response, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But interestingly, a completely different Hebrew word is used here, the word chazak. And it does not mean make hard. The word chazak means to make strong. After Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to repent and hardens his own heart, then God hardens his heart as a judicial punishment, just like Paul describes in Romans 1, by the way, Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them over to their own sinful desires of their heart. God gives Pharaoh over here. But interestingly, the literal Hebrew does not say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It said God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. The word is chazak. Pharaoh wanted to do, what's happening here? Pharaoh wanted to do evil. He wanted to oppress Israel. He did not want to let them go. But all these plagues are coming, plague after plague after plague, and they're pressuring Pharaoh to give in. So what does God do? God strengthens his heart in order to resist these pressures, in order to do what his evil heart really wants him to do, to not let Israel go. So God is strengthening his heart. What, he, what God is actually doing is he's actually returning to Pharaoh his free, his free will. God is strengthening his heart and therefore, therefore returning his free will to him because he's strengthening him to do what he really wants to do in his heart of hearts. God hardened or strengthened his heart so that Pharaoh could do what he really wanted to do. So Pharaoh first hardened his own selfish and rebellious and prideful heart. And then as a just punishment, 
known as, known as judicial hardening. God hardened his heart. Salvation is by grace, but hardening is always earned. Pharaoh deserved it because all of God's ways are just. So when Paul's talking about Pharaoh, Romans 9.18, and says, God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills, this is not an arbitrary, random decision, but rather it's based on God looking at your heart. Like it says in 1 Samuel 16.7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is all consistent with Romans 9.22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. God let them, these sinful people, he let them continue to live and bore with them patiently, not wanting any to come to destruction. But when they refuse to repent, the Lord ultimately judges them and shows forth his power and his glory. And note also that hardening does not always mean damnation. That's not the same thing. Romans 11 says Israel is hardened only in part. And if they repent and believe the Lord, the Lord can graft them back into their own natural olive tree. As Paul's going to explain in detail in Romans 11. And hardening isn't permanent necessarily. It can be just for season you're hardened. We see this right with Pharaoh, for example. Because if it was permanent, why would God have to keep hardening Pharaoh's heart over and over and over again? So why does God judge Pharaoh? Exodus 9.16, book of Exodus. But I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Everything is done for God's glory so that his name might be known. Indeed, when the Israelites enter the promised land and they cross at Jericho, Rahab, what does Rahab say? She says, I've heard all about your God and what he did to Pharaoh. And she becomes saved. She puts her trust in the one true God of Israel. God's making his great name known through what he did to Pharaoh. So put this on the overhead. Uh, when Paul talks in Romans 9.17 about Pharaoh being hardened, what is Paul's ultimate point now of application to his fellow Jews? Number one, not all Israel is automatically saved and guaranteed future, the future blessings to come of it to Israel. And number two, God judicially hardens people, including some of Israel, for a just cause. And Paul's fellow Jews can't argue with this Because Paul uses Pharaoh as his example. And of course, every Jew is going to agree, yes, that's right. Pharaoh deserved it. So then Paul says, what if in the exact same way, God is judicially hardening some of Israel right now? Paul is brilliantly using Old Testament truths to show his Jewish audience New Testament realities. God is judicially hardening some of Israel right now. That's the difficult truth that Paul is trying to present to explain why God's promises have not failed. And as we'll claim in Romans 11, eventually all Israel will be saved. And in Romans 10, Paul will explain why his fellow Jews are currently hardened. It's not an arbitrary fiat of God for no reason. As Paul will explain, it's because they did not choose to put their faith in their own promised Jewish Messiah but rather insisted on trying to establish their own righteousness. Let me close with this admonition about hardening. Because the truth is, you can be hardened. You can harden yourself. You can rebel against God 
and receive a judicial hardening in your own life. You know, we in the West, we have to rediscover a healthy fear of the Lord, which the Bible says is the beginning of wisdom. So yes, even believers, God forbid, can choose to harden their own hearts against the Lord. And so the Lord would have you today examine yourself and ask yourself, is my heart today soft and pliable before the Lord? Am I humble and teachable? Do I receive rebuke and correction? Or rather, do I get defensive and rebel against it? Am I quick to confess and quick to repent? Are my defenses down before the Lord? Or am I quick to make excuses? Clothe myself with with self-proclaimed righteousness? When confronted, do I attack back? Uh, Do I try to shift blame? Am I so busy trying to take the speck out of my brother's eye that I ignore the log in my own eye? Am I zealous to strip all things from my life and all outside influences that would keep me from fully yielding to you, Lord? Am I soft and pliable clay that yields, Lord Yeshua, to your molding and your shaping? You know, it's fine to read about Pharaoh's hardening or other ancient people being hardened, but we have to deal with the person in the mirror ourselves. This is past week I heard a story, a true story, about a, a guy drinking himself into the grave. Uh, he has severe liver disease, a cirrhosis of the liver. He's dying. His skin's all discolored. His, his eyes are yellow. Uh, and a friend sh- shared the gospel with him one last time and pleaded with him, turn your heart to Yeshua, repent, put your trust in him. And the dying man says to his friend, I believe the gospel is true. But I can't do it. Because after a lifetime of repeatedly hearing God calling him, but yet continually rejecting God, rejecting God, rejecting God, he had hardened his heart. And now at his deathbed, though he sought repentance, he couldn't bring himself to surrender his life to Messiah. He had so hardened his heart He was no longer open to to hear and to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit. His friend handed him a Bible in the hospital room, but he picked it up and he set it down as far away from himself as he could. And then he put a magazine on top of it. How tragic. Do not harden your heart as this man did. Do not harden your heart uh, as our people did for 40 years in the wilderness. And the Lord says, I loathed that generation. Only two of them ever made it to the promised land. If there is anything today between you and God, I beg you to repent. Repent while you can still hear his voice. Because if you resist and resist and resist, there will come a day when you no longer can hear him. The Holy Spirit will not strive with you forever. So humble yourself today. Surrender all to him. He will lift you up. And in the same way, I want to exhort you today, do not harden your heart against your husband or your wife. 
Satan wants to sift our marriages. We must resist. Do not harden your heart against your children. Children here today, teens, young adults, do not rebel. Do not harden your hearts against your parents. Pray for the Lord today for mercy. Lord, please soften my heart. He longs to hear that prayer. And he promises to answer it. Because a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. Amen. And let us stand and pray. Hallelujah. And I have the music team to please come on up. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you today for your word. Your word, which is always alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, judging the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, which is new every morning. We know that you search to and fro, looking for a heart that's sold out, that's that surrendered to you. Lord, we thank you for these truths from your word. Help us today not to harden our hearts towards you. We invite you, Lord, to show us our sin. Show us our selfish and self-seeking motives. Show us, Lord, our pride and our bitterness and judgmentalism. Show us our arrogance and unforgiveness. Show us, Lord, our gossip and our slander and evil heart. Lord, we fall on our face before you. We repent in dust and ashes. Give us, Lord, a broken and contrite heart before you. Give us a heart of humility and meekness and servanthood. Consider others better than ourselves. Help us to esteem our spouse, our parent, our brother, our sister, our co-worker, our classmate, our neighbor above ourselves. Give us a soft heart towards them and towards you, Lord Yeshua. And give us also, finally, Lord, a heart like Paul had for our people Israel, whereby Paul could even wish himself accursed, cut off from you, Lord, for the sake of our people, the people Israel. Give us Paul's anguish of heart and unceasing sorrow for the loss among our own people. And give us boldness to not be ashamed of your gospel, Lord, but to fearlessly proclaim it while there is breath left in our nostrils. And proclaim it in your divine order to the Jew first and also the Gentile. For we pray this all in your holy name. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.